Hello and welcome to Frame to Frame. This is the podcast that brings together movies that you wouldn't necessarily look at as being linked. However, they are. So some of the uh, themes that we've done in the past are, have been films inspired by Alice in Wonderland, showmanship in the 1800s, World War II through a child's eyes, and all sorts of, of different uh, different themes. I'm Andy Williams. I'm Sean Wilson. And this week we're going to be looking at sports movies that are all about fatherhood. So the two movies that we've selected are, Sean, one of your all-time favourites. Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams. And just a film that I really, really like in Over the Top. So we're going to start discussing Over the Top. So Sean, why don't you tell people a little bit about your relationship with the film? (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Okay, where to start? Uh, let's start by saying that at the time we're recording this podcast, I'm fresh from watching the film for the first time by about two hours. So I had never seen this film before you kind of browbeated me into watching it. And I, I was like, okay, I, I, I was aware of it. I'd seen... Um, I'd seen clips of it because it's, it, I mean, it's famously, it's directed by um, Menahem Golan, who was one of the uh, founders of the Canon Films label, who were notorious throughout the 80s for putting out a load of um, schlocky, low budget, often quite crude B-movies, the most notorious of which is surely Superman for The Quest for Peace, which is one of the worst films ever made, ever. Um, so Menahem Golan directed this in 1987 and I, I'd seen that there was that fantastic documentary that came out a few years ago about the uh, founding of Canon Films and about all the movies that they'd made that's that's a really good documentary anyone listening to this who hasn't seen that I would encourage you to go and go and watch it because it's a very very interesting look at how exploitation movies are funded and just the, the crazy ideas that the that these guys uh, had at their fingertips so I'd seen clips of this film on that documentary namely mm-hmm. Sly Stallone with a backwards facing baseball cap wearing a tank top covered in baby oil going as he like arm wrestles an impossibly muscled bloke to the table I was like okay and right so but the thing is that clip those clips only give a, a certain measure of what the film it's about. I just think. Um, I mean, it's funny watching it. I was, I was thinking. I said this to you when I when I was watching. It. I was like, now I know where the Hugh Jackman movie Real Steel got a lot of stole a lot of its plot from. Although that was actually based on a Richard Matheson story as well, albeit without the the robots in the in in um, over the top. So. I mean, the acting could arguably be described as robotic. <laughs> well, this is the thing. So Sylvester Stallone is a, is a is a big rig driver who at the at the beginning of you're the... forgetting the most important part. The most important part is he's a big rig driver named Lincoln Hawk. <laughs> what a name! It's like they got two sports cars and like mashed them together <laughs> in one of the name, isn't it? And um, what what I I, I was I was almost like live whatsapping you as I was watching it and you had to tell me to stop doing it you had to tell me to stop Mm -hmm. spoiling my own stream of consciousness but I had to tell you about the bit where Sly Stallone is seen at the very beginning oh he's a man you know he's driving a big rig he's good yeah he's all that all that kind of stuff and then the title over the top literally appears overladen over the over a backdrop of a mountain so it's over the top and you see a mountain appears like okay so it's manly it's about overcoming your demons it's about masculinity and testosterone there's an 80s synth soundtrack by Giorgio Moroder actually I had no idea that Giorgio Moroder wrote the score for this but there we go and I thought it was just a a load of 
real world slightly rubbish rock music. There, there, there is a lot. There's a lot of that. <laughs> there's a lot of that. Um, I thought the George M. Rowe discovered. I think it worked perfectly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he he has to pick up his estranged son, who is a, a military cadet. Who um, and Cy Stallone is, is has been estranged from the son and estranged from the mother, who very awkwardly and randomly is dying in a hospital in another part of America, which is a part of the plot that they never ever really get. They never really get to grips with that, and it's kind of like that distracts from the manliness it, of the whole. It, thing, it really it? doesn't. It just it doesn't really go you anywhere. You don't need this emotion. She's just the plot device. Yeah, she, she's li- she's literally. Together. It just cuts to her every every now and then in a bed going. Ugh. <laughs> it's just like right okay what's going on so he Sidestone picks up his son who's a military cadet who because he's a because he's a young military cadet he's only about 12 I think he's got he's got a, a certain kind of bearing and a certain kind of way of speaking he's been brought up in a certain way and I quite like this the, the chemistry between the sort of low-key soulful Sly Stallone that we saw in the first Rocky and the first Rambo movie I think Sylvester Stallone can actually do that very very well and I think this is a nice, initially, this is a nice low-key Sylvester Stallone performance. He's playing off the kids very well. And the kid is obviously, you know, he's he's portraying a child who's been brought up in very specific circumstances. You know, he's been brought up at this military school because he doesn't really know Sylvester Stallone as the dad. That's all fine. And, um, and just for some, for some very bizarre reason that I can't quite work out, the kid has got... A grandfather played by Robert Loggia from Big and Independence Day, who to all intents and purposes is a Bond villain who has all these like lackeys around him. And all henchmen. All henchmen who like lounge around on sofas. And then when he snaps his fingers, they get up and do his bidding. And at one point, he, he wants the kid kidnapped because he hates Sylvester Stallone that much. And at one point, he, he attempts to have the child kidnapped and brought back to him. I'm like, hang on. Yeah, because that's, that's not going to disturb any young child it, at all. It, it, just, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's kind of like, okay, I understand why you're angry at Sylvester Stallone's character, but why why are you this kind of fiendish, like, chin-stroking, like, rich guy? I mean, you expect him to have, like, a tank full of piranhas or, or, or something. It's just completely, it's completely ridiculous. There's a brilliant line at one point where he says to his... He's trying to get the child back into his custody of Sylvester Stallone. And he says to his lawyer, you know, you can bend the rules, can't you? It's your job. You're a lawyer. Find a loophole. It's just <laughs> this is classic dialogue. Um, but I mean, that's... Let's not apply too much logic to the no. dialogue. Let's just, you know, it's fine. It works. I mean, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that we're here to talk about sports movies that are secretly dad movies. There is nothing secret about this because literally about about 15 minutes in, I thought, okay, I'm quite enjoying this. I'm quite enjoying the... I mean, I like the fact that it gets straight into the storyline. Literally within about 10 minutes, he's picked the kid up from the school they're traveling somewhere to go and meet the, the, the dying mother. Robert Logier is on the sidelines doing like cackling kind of like evil rich, rich. No, he dude. went to the school. He went straight to the school and was like, how dare you release him into Lincoln Hawks? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think, okay, so at least it's got kind of a brisk sense of pace and it's not hanging around. I think fair enough. And then 15 minutes in 20 minutes in, they stop at a bar and Sylvester Stallone is accosted by some big burly guys in, tank tops and then literally within about 30 seconds he's made the decision to to enter into an arm wrestling competition with them and my it was like that scene in the mask where jim carries in the club and his george goes like that and just literally falls onto the table i was like what oddly enough another film i've watched this week yeah and the mask is fantastic um and i was like okay so this this clearly is the kind of movie that's going to veer between absolute cheddar and absolute sincerity at will 
and I'm not going to be able to keep track of what on what on earth is going on. And I think the best part of the film is the fact that Stallone plays it so sincere. Even when he's in the arm wrestling scenes, he's he's not channeling Rocky at fight mode at that point. He's almost channeling Dolph Lundgren in Rocky Four, in that I will beat you, I will break you. <laughs> Let's see in Vegas. And I'm not going to do a Stallone impression, and I I guess that you're about to. But um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I got to do the thing. What, that's what brings the, the the film through for me is that he plays it straight as an arrow, and that not only heightens the the more comedic and lighthearted aspects of it but when the competition comes to being a competition you do begin to feel for him I, I don't quite understand I've seen this movie several times I don't understand how the plot manages to get the device that if he wins an arm wrestling contest then he wins his son like that's <laughs> I <laughs> I'm mean, still not sure how that, that works it I sounds mean, almost a trophy the way the way that it contrives to get the father son angle in beneath the, the, the wrestling angle or alongside the wrestling angle is utterly ridiculous in the last 20 minutes because not, not only do you have that that you just pointed out there which is actually a really good point I didn't think about that that's actually a really really good point you also in order for the son to get to the pivotal arm wrestling contest involving Sly Stallone. He's got to learn to drive a truck, which Sly Stallone taught him to do earlier. I thought when that happened, I thought, is this going to be one of those 80s movies where a kid learns to drive a truck in 30 seconds? Oh, yeah, it is. And then yeah. he has to drive a truck to the airport. He, The kid then manages to get on a plane, but despite not having any money or a ticket, he gets off the plane. He then gets attacked. Pre nine eleven, it was quite easy to get through. <laughs> it's it. Clearly, it was. And he then manages to get off the plane in Las Vegas. He manages to get into a taxi, gets to wherever the arm wrestling contest is happening, like Caesar's Palace. I'm like, hang on, what's is, is this kid? Is he like an Avenger or something? Like what? What? He's just very resourceful because he spent three days with his biological father. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's, it's it's almost like the movie is on is on fast forward. And and it's just, it's just ridiculous. And you know when you said about its sense of breeziness, you said you like that. Yeah, yeah. The there, there is there is that. I mean, literally by the end of it, but the last twenty minutes, I was like, what? I was like, what the hell is is going on? Like when when the arm wrestling thing takes over, you should have seen my face. It was <laughs> I, I was so confused by what was happening and the way that. I don't think Menahem Golan, I mean, let's face it, he's the founder of Canon Films. He's not Stanley Kubrick, let's be honest. So in in the midst of that final arm wrestling bit, it goes into kind of like quasi-documentary moments where you have almost like the actors in character speaking to camera about their arm wrestling abilities, almost in the manner of a documentary, including Cy Stallone, who is a fictional character, but what they've done there is they've cut it to, to look like a wrestling show. Yeah, yeah, I know, but that's and... that's completely out of step with everything else that's happened in the movie. It's just... Because we're, we're then in like arm wrestling competition mode, <laughs> so we need to hear and understand the inner thoughts and promos of the, the arm wrestling. It's just, it's just a fantastic film. Oh, it's my it's... God. I mean, I, I will and say... When, when you said about sports movies that uh, were basically about fatherhood, Tell me what part of this is not about fatherhood or a sports movie. I mean, it, it, it follows it, the exact sports movie format that you need it to. It's got, it hits every genre beat. Oh, is he going to win? He might not win. Oh, he's down. He might win. Oh, look, suddenly he's back. So you've got that aspect of it. Plus 
the whole father, like as you said, it's it's a relatively laboured point, but the fact is, it is a film about fatherhood. So I don't see what you're complaining. I mean, about. I don't really see how you could possibly miss that. I mean, I just said that you know the the, the kid practically turns into a into a time travelling magician to be with his dad at the at the end of the film, and that and they're in such a rush to get past that plot point, they don't even hang around the fact that how did he get on the plane? How did he get out of the airport? How did he? It doesn't doesn't matter. Let's not worry about yeah. Um, Logic. I, I I have to confess, against my better judgment, I did actually I did actually rather enjoy it. I I particularly enjoyed yeah, the um <laughs> I did I did I really like I did really chuckle at the moment where um before the finale, uh where you know the fiendish fiendish Robert Robert Logier, who is, you know, is 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 out to besmirch Sly Stallone's good name, has has taken the boy um back into his custody and Sly Stallone is so angry that he drives his truck through the gates of his palatial estate and right th- right through the fountain and, he, and then and then Robert Logia's character seems oddly calm about it he's kind of like how he's just kind of like how dare you come into here and trash my house and attempt to take my son's like I'd be a little bit angrier than that it's, he's destroyed his fountain and broken his door down I'd be a little I mean, bit more mean, I mean I'm sure he's got enough money to be able to pay for it um, well, he also had just recently gone to rent a goon and hired a whole host of goons exactly, to be around. Exactly, him, so exactly. Safe, and, so. and you know the whole, the, the, I mean, the whole rent a goon thing that when when they kidnap the boy, which again is is li- literally comes out of nowhere about halfway through the film. And oh, hang on, it's turned into a kidnap film. I oh, know it hasn't. Sylvester Stallone's got his big rig and, and run them off the road within about within about thirty seconds. Which he, can, he can outpace a car in that because. <laughs> I was watching that scene thinking, you're not going to catch up with them in that. Oh, you are. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's because he's such a good driver and he's got such good arms. <laughs> I love the fact there's also a plot point of him working out whilst he's driving. That he's got weights yeah, he's in his big <laughs> And he's driving and controlling yes. the steering wheel with one hand and he's just doing reps with the other hand. Yeah. And there is the... there is the Again, this is where the real steel thing comes in because obviously real steel, the Hugh Jackman movie about, you know, that boxing has been replaced by robotic boxing. And in that film, he has to... He teams up with his his estranged. I was going to say his robotic son, his estranged son. <laughs> and they go and they go on the road and they go on the road together and they learn to rekindle the father son thing while they're while they're getting the robot um out in, in into the rest into the boxing matches. And there is there is a scene in Over the Top which is so obviously stolen in Real Steel, whereby you know the, the father in Over the Top, the father the son are sort of framed against the rising sun, doing kind of workouts to a sort of synthy. Mm. 80s a wonderful power. 80s montage 80s montage yeah yeah and there there is a shot in real steel that is so clearly ripped exactly ripped off that um well, there's a lot of it a lot of over the top i think it's ripped off in real steel although i have to say i really like real steel i thought it was a really good film but well, now you really like over the top as well and bear yeah. in mind over the top doesn't just refer to the plot or the writing what it refers to is a technique in arm wrestling where you manage to move your hand and get over the top uh, which I, mean, I quite enjoy. I mean, just in case anyone missed the metaphor and the wider metaphorical significance underpinning that title. <laughs> I mean, for me, I, I did enjoy it. I have to confess, I did think it was one of those Sly Stallone projects that he clearly bashed out in between Rocky and Rambo. He was clearly a bit becalmed and he's like, right, what can I do to occupy myself? I know, let's do this. Well, I read somewhere, so I can't possibly quote where I read it from, that Stallone didn't want to make it, um, but he was sort of uh, convinced to do so by by the director, um, and then thought later on, 
Ah, and there was a quote that was attributed to Stallone. So I, I allegedly is all I can say, just so um, lawyers can't come after me. But allegedly, <laughs> Stallone turned around and said, "It doesn't matter anyway because no one's going to see me in it." Ooh. So I think he doesn't even particularly like this film, but I do. <laughs> well, you find me a better film about arm wrestling. That's all I'm going to say. I mean, I'm sure it's it's a it's a limited bunch really um can i just say in the very unlikely event that Sylvester sloan is listening sorry i've now seen you in it <laughs> i'm now and i'm now talking to more people yeah, exactly because it is a classic of the arm wrestling genre <laughs> i'm curious to know what other films there are in that it's... um oh, i couldn't find any hang on i know there is it's not an arm wrestling film but there is an arm wrestling scene and a very very nasty one the fly the david cronenberg film which is that? This is true. That where Jeff Goldblum breaks the bloke's arm because he's because he's been fused with the, the housefly and he's a lot stronger. Yeah, that's not a very nice scene. That. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's arm wrestling in, in quite a few films. Mm. There's an arm wrestling that scene in Revenge of the Nerds. Mm-hmm. In Entourage, you'd be surprised to learn. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I think I think it is very much very much an over the top kind of category. Yeah. So um, just to refer to you mentioned uh, a documentary on the Cannon Group. Uh, if anyone does want to check that documentary out, it's called Electric Boogaloo, The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films. It was released in 2014. So that will pretty much do over the top. But now we're going to come to one of Sean's favourite films, one which I had only seen once a long, long time ago. So I was intrigued to watch again. But Sean, tell us a bit about your views on Field of Dreams. Well, it's in short, it's wonderful. It's such a lovely film. And just to, for those who maybe need a bit of a refresher on it, um, Kevin Costner is an Iowa farmer who starts hearing a ghostly voice who compels him to build a baseball diamond in his cornfield. And what this then does is it it paves the way for a story of um, uh, redemption and uh, secrets and um well not secrets but family and um, family um trauma i suppose in a way and um it's just it's just absolutely wonderful it is it is a it is a really really wonderful slice of of american americana what do you make of it so i think i think of this similar to how you think of over the top um i found this very um cheesy and overly sentimental in places, but it was also very fun in other places. Um, I think the, the metaphor of, of baseball, meaning America, is is quite laboured, and there's also parts of the film where the, the the main characters can see sort of these ghostly apparitions playing baseball, but other people can't, and then suddenly you have to believe, and it's almost like a Father Christmas movie. You've got to believe in order to get get it. It's a plot point used in the Polar Express. So, <laughs> you know, there's, there's certain parts of the film that I just found a little bit on the nose. I read somewhere that um, if someone said that if um, Frank Capra was alive in the 80s, this is the type of film he'd be making. I completely I agree. I kind of disagree with that because um, what Capra did was fables and what Capra did was... Um, not quite as overtly sentimental as I think this is. So what it does play up a lot is the relationship between Kevin Costner's Ray and his dead father um, about sort of the trauma that he had 
from moving away and the sort of what he missed out in his father's life and what they need to reconcile in order for, for this to finish. Um, but what I didn't quite get, and let's just start straight at the end, what I didn't get is we were building up to this this great show at the end of, in the field of dreams and he just has a meeting with his father and then credits. Hang on, hang on, hang on a minute. You, you didn't feel the emotional impact of that. That No, I wanted a baseball game. I wanted someone to hit it, hit home runs. But and they, but then... they, but they, they do hit it. The, the, the camera cranes up at the very end and, and it, it gives and, them their, it gives them their moment. It gives them their solitude. That's the, it's the intimacy yeah, of the but, moment and, that's preserved. But then you see the the, the, the crowd of people yeah. coming. And I wanted another scene where you then see the baseball game. No, because that's well, we're getting we're getting to the meat of it here, aren't we? Because this is this is one this is the reason why I chose it. It's because it uses the trappings of baseball, but I think really the movie at its centre isn't interested in baseball. What it's interested in oh, doing absolutely not. It's 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 interested in using baseball as as an agent of redemption and of family relationships. And as somebody who has been to a baseball game and found it insufferably dull, and I find most sports insufferably dull, to be honest, I quite yeah, I like the idea. start of, with that. You yeah. I, I, <laughs> I like, I it's mean. It's MacGuffin for this entire film is baseball. And I, like, I get that. It's got to get the characters from point A to point B. But you can't bring in these classic real life um, former baseball players that you've then subsequently recast for the film because most of them played a long long time before the film was released and then just have them walk into a field and disappear and by the way what happened to James Earl Jones's character well it's like you said it's a fable and the movie isn't about to tie itself up in knots by explaining its own logic and I think that's probably one of the one of the I think one of the problems that you might have with it is that it's it's an American movie that doesn't seem to follow a linear set of internal rules and i think this is one of the reasons why i like it i like i like the fact that the movie embraces this intersection point between something that is physically real and something that is outlandish and dreamy and whimsical but it doesn't ever attempt to explain why these two things are meeting like this it doesn't attempt to explain where you know well obviously it does explain where the voice is coming from but it doesn't explain how these ghosts manifest what, what happens to james l jones's character terence man i like i like the fact that the the characters in the movie accept the circumstances and i i like i like that that acceptance of i mean i like that the, the way that the characters accept the fantasy and therefore you know vicariously we ex- we well we're meant to accept as well obviously in your case you didn't sounds like you didn't necessarily no i just i find it um like i said a bit labored and a bit cheesy it just seemed very on the nose uh with what it was trying to say in that america is the field of dreams and we can all build this and it's basically a, a proving the american dream that if i put whatever i need to into this thing i will get something out of it and that element of the fantasy didn't. But I mean, really... it, it sounds like you've read it as a bit more of a kind of capitalistic economist tract, and I, I, I didn't. It focused on money the entire way through. All his wife says is about his money and how. Well, he can't I mean, she has got a legitimate. She has got a legitimate concern in that, but I think that 
I mean, but he can't afford to do it, something until suddenly he has to. It's, it's, because it's, the voice told him to. It's a movie where you, you have to sense. be you have to be patient with it because it does it does meander. It does meander all over the place, and you know the the, the final reveal of the baseball player taking the helmet off and being his young father like that catches you i mean obviously certain viewers will have anticipated that in advance but i mean i absolutely saw that coming. yeah but it, it doesn't matter if you see it coming because ultimately all everything that has been fantastical and as you say silly and cheesy all of a sudden all of that just dies away and it all comes to a point and it all comes to a moment of absolutely brilliant emotional honesty which is what if you could see your dad when he was a young man what if you had a chance to play a base play a game of catch or just to have a conversation with him and I think that no matter how allegedly meandering or frustrating the rest of the movie might be it rewards your patience when you get to that point because you know that Kevin Costner's character Ray Kinsella he's got this Iowa baseball field you know that he's haunted by the fact that he's got a troubled relationship with with his with his late father his deceased father and you think okay this is kind of building towards something all the way through the movie but even if you see that reveal coming at the end it's so the acting is so brilliant and it's so magnificently wrought by phil Alden robinson the director and you know what i'm going to say next about the score i mean well, i was gonna try and preempt you on this one but you've beat me to the punch i mean if you're not i was going to say i was going to say before you jump at me was that one of the best and redeeming features of the film was james horner's score yeah because the kind of orchestral, huge sounds that he's gone for, they're the things that bring an emotional heft. They're the only things that really are connected with on that level um, was just the way that the score interacts with the film. So I, I will absolutely concede every point that you've got to make about the score. But it's interesting that you describe the score as huge because uh, James Horner was was very famous for doing big melodramatic scores like Legends of the Fall, Titanic, Braveheart, you know, things like that. But th- this, I would say, is one of his greatest scores because of how intimate and how relatively restrained it is. I know, I know what you mean in terms of that final scene. That that that, that final scene, the track is called "The Place Where Dreams Come True." I think it might actually be the finest thing that James Horner ever composed, which is you know really saying something. But that is really if you listen to the score on the album, that's really the only piece of music that really lets itself go. The rest of the score is actually very restrained as it is indeed. And if you, if you listen to the score throughout the film, it's, it's very wistful and pensive and melancholy. And I think the score earns the right to go big in that mm-hmm. final scene, because it doesn't yeah. do it throughout the rest of the film, which is quite unusual for James Horner because he was never backwards in coming forwards in being fulsome and I, I think that's one of the reasons why I adore this score from him so much is it, it has that one 10 minute moment of, of emotional catharsis at the end that is all the more powerful because of how quiet the rest of the music ha- has been. And that's the part on which I agree with you. That's the bit I, I completely concede. Um, but the, the film as a whole being almost like having to go through and find the next clue. It's, it's almost like a rat race or a treasure hunt that you've got to, oh, look, if you build this, he will come. Right, now I've got to build a baseball dome, which the two don't really equate, but there we go. And then he's got to go and fix somebody. So he's then sat in a a parent-teacher meeting or PTA meeting or whatever, and they're trying to ban this text. And, oh, now I've suddenly had a brainwave. I need to go and see Terence Mann. And so he travels bankrupt in his family in the process, um, 
to visit Townsman, who promptly tells him to go away, because that's what you would do. But for some reason, Ray has decided that he has to take him to a baseball game. And it it was all a bit too convenient. It was a bit too clunkily plotted. I mean, uh, to me... And also, when he was on the drive to, um, to Townsman, it was very, very jarring having the um, theme of Top Gear playing whilst he's driving through the American highway system. Or so, the Orman brothers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, well, that's not their you know, fault. <laughs> well, no, I know. But, I mean, Top Gear was around before this one. Exactly, so yeah. yeah. But, um, and then suddenly they've got to go and find, understand what's going on with uh, an old physician. Played uh, by Bert find... Lancaster in yes. one of his, fi- if not one of, if not his final role. Yeah, and, you know... I, I, him being the, the sort of almost tragic story of someone that never got up to the plate in the majors and gave up and became a doctor. And, I, you know, I get that as a short burst. Like, that's almost an episode of Twilight Zone. But having that as sort of a side section, which at that point in time doesn't make sense and only begins to make some form of sense when they're driving back to their own, to, to Ray's field, to, and then suddenly they bump into somebody who calls himself Moonlight Graham. So... I don't know, it just, it felt a bit convenient. It felt a bit clumsily plotted. I, I, I think I think you've tried to look at the movie in, in, in too pragmatic a fashion. I think, I, I, I really like it because I think what it shows is that those themes of regret and loss of innocence and the idea of being haunted by one's past don't just apply to people who are living, they also apply to people who are dead. They apply to the Burt Lancaster character, the Doc Graham character, because he he talks about his past. The um, Shoeless Joe baseball character played by Ray Liotta in one of Ray Liotta's early roles talks about having been thrown out of the game. And I think that's, a, I think personally, I'm, I don't really see it. I don't really think it helps to look at the film as a sort of point A to point B to point C narrative i think it's more of it's more a movie of texture and tone maybe this is just the way i'm reading it maybe i just accept it on the level of being about texture and tone light and dark um reality and fantasy and i um you know i'm not i'm not traditions of the film as like the film doesn't set up those lines between fantasy and reality they blur them and they do so deliberately so as a juxtaposition the, the film as a whole almost betrays its own rules and the fact, so one of the things I very, very vehemently dislike was that in one scene, um, Ray's brother-in-law is looking to buy the farm and convincing them. And then suddenly like, his daughter falls off the bleachers that they've made. And um, that's where Doc Graham comes out and, and helps save her. But then suddenly Ray's brother-in-law can magically see all the baseball. And it it didn't make sense that... One minute he can't, and then the next minute he can, just because he believes. And it's just, it was a bit, like I said, a bit convenient. I mean, it it it, 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 it it is convenient, but I suppose it depends on whether you, excuse me, whether you buy into the general whimsy of the film. I mean, I should say that much as I much as I dislike a lot of sport, and much as I really dislike baseball, having had a you know personal experience with it in in San Francisco, and I lost like three hours of my life to it. I'm I'm a real sucker for um Americana films and I hate all American sports. Just saying. Hey. 
You hate all American sports. Well, I hate most sports in general, to, to be honest. <laughs> um, and I, I think that's why it, it's quite telling that I love this film and yet I hate sports. So I think what that says is it's not, for me personally, it's not about sport. It is, it's, 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 got, it's got the framework of a sports movie, but it smuggles in this story of what it, it gets you to reflect on the nature of your relationships with your parents or your parents, your father in this case, which I find... In, incredibly powerful but i i am i am a sucker for americana imagery i'm a sucker for the the, the imagery of um farmhouses in cornfields and that opening that opening um scene in which you have the james horner's score kind of flutters from the um piano the, the piano theme from kevin costner's character into these kind of like eerie woozy like electronic textures as kevin costner's character hears he's wandering through the field and he hears the voice and i love that i just love the amalgamation of you know americana it's it's a ghost story it's a family redemption story it's a story about an ordinary and every man um you know who who is a, a sports fanatic but that love of sport hasn't helped him overcome that one great regret that he's got which is that he never quite he never reconciled with his father before he died and then through this um it is it is a convoluted process so i do take your point that it is convenient but regardless whether it is convenient or convoluted it throws you out on the other side on exactly the right kind of i'd say emotional moment of emotional catharsis and i don't i mean i don't know how anyone couldn't be moved by that final by that final scene which is so brilliantly played by kevin costner and just magnificently scored by by james horner and interestingly enough james horner wanted another scene i've wanted that that scene where his dad hit a home run and he as a son looked down and was proud of but but that i mean that that would that that would have been cheesy that would have been cheesy in the in the extreme but that would have been the moment that i was waiting for Really? That would have been the payoff. Yeah, because it was. I mean, the, the payoff is they got to meet each other again. Yeah. That's... <laughs> but then what happens afterwards is is the farm okay? Well, it's, 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 all, it's all trappings, isn't it? It's like. <laughs> I mean, um, didn't you find the whole looking at the the farmhouse and that the you mentioned the images of it? Didn't you just find that it was foreshadowing the fact that? Um, Kevin Costner was going to play Jonathan Kent, Superman's dad, one day. Well, well I mean, clearly, all, all of that in Man of Steel was ripped right off, uh, ripped right off Field of Dreams, uh, right down to the casting of, of Kevin Costner. Yeah, you're right there. Uh, I knew I'd start you off. On, <laughs> if I start you on Zack Snyder, then, yeah, man. exactly. Yeah, you don't want to do that. Um, <laughs> no, I I just think it's it's a movie that. I mean, it's interesting. It might be a bit of a weird comparison, but you know, in um, in Studio Ghibli, Studio Ghibli movies, they're animated movies, but Studio Ghibli movies throw logic to the wind. They start off with a scenario that might be vaguely recognisable and vaguely human, and they go off into these weird tangents and narrative cul-de-sacs, and you're kind of like, okay, where is this going? But you, you forgive it because you know that underpinning all of the craziness, all of the kookiness, like goblins, ghosts, witches, monsters, whatever, you know that underpinning it, there is there is a human principle to it. So you'll forgive the kind of weird digressions in something like Spirited Away, like when they, when she goes into the bathhouse in Spirited Away, you think, okay, this is so strange, 
but I understand, I emotionally understand what is going on with that central character. And I kind of think that Field of Dreams maybe owes more to that kind of principle, perhaps. Um, I I think you're reaching. Really? So when you, yeah, when you look at, at, at Ghibli, yeah. um, I think the thing that they do particularly well is they stay very focused on the human and on the person within the, your main character, whether that's a human, whether that's a fish, who knows. So that's why I think they do particularly well. Whereas I think this, like I said, became almost a treasure hunt at a certain point that he he had to go through point A to get to plot B to jump through these hoops and come back to his house again. And that's where I think my main problem with the film came was that it was trying to be something that it wasn't, but also doing it in a very complicated and convenient manner. Okay. <laughs> Well, it's not okay, but it's, it's not okay. We're, so. we're, we're going to disagree. You said, you said off mic that you wanted a podcast of a film that you love and I disagree. But I, I didn't know it was going to be this one. <laughs> no idea. Can I also just say as well, um, the late, great James Horner was also, he also confessed that he wasn't a fan of baseball. He didn't want to score this movie because it was a baseball movie. He wanted to score it because it was a father-son movie. That's why he did it, and that's why he delivered one of his finest scores that got nominated for an Oscar. So, Well, in terms of baseball, Kevin Costner is clearly a fan mm. because he's been in however many but films. Bull Durham. Like, um, uh, Chasing Dreams, For the Love of the Game, The Upside of Anger. He's been in several yeah, films yeah. around baseball. So yeah. he's clearly... He, I, I would guess that he was sort of like, oh, good, a baseball movie. Oh, look, there's a father-son thing. Sure. <laughs> so <laughs> so cynical. Yeah. <laughs> so cynical. Yeah. I'll, I'll take that. But then I, but, I um, was rather cynical about Over the Top, so it's your own, you're getting your own back, I think. Well, I mean, everything you got from um, Field of Dreams, I got from Over the Top. The relationship between the father and son, the overcoming of adversity, and ultimately the fact that you can't choose your family, but you can choose to love them. I mean, you can't possibly say that Field of Dreams was was as cheesy as, as Over the Top. I mean, even if you see Field of Dreams as cheesy, that's fine. I mean, Over the Top is in a completely different... Like, like the bit when he's in... It is. But it knows it is. It's not trying to be <laughs> earnest and trying to play it as a different thing. It knows what it is and it does it. And you can get all of the films, all of the, the things that you've got from um, from Field of Dreams from Over the Top. Isn't it, isn't it weird also in Over the Top that the sun, the sun looks like Demi Moore in Ghost, which is, which is really distracting. Um, he's, got, he's got the same haircut. It's not something I'd noticed. <laughs> it's just, it's <laughs> very, very weird. Um, I can confirm that uh, Michael Hawke was not played by Demi Moore, but by David Mendenhall. Okay, fair enough. So Apologies, David. He went on to be in. He went on to be in Transformers the movie, the animated version. Oh, the good one. Okay. Um, yeah, there we go. Let's call it that. That's good. And now he's he's gone into um, sort of very different kinds of films. He was in a Gifted Man, the um, the TV drama with Patrick Wilson. Are you going to have to fill me in? Directed by Jonathan Demi. Okay. It's a TV show that you wouldn't have ever watched. Okay, because I don't do TV. Um, no, I know that's what that's the beautiful thing about this lockdown is that you now have to watch some TV things. I, I've I've watched I've watched quite a bit of TV. I watched um, Normal People, which I thought was magnificent. I watched. Ah, um, we'll get to that. I've, we'll talk about that off mic because I've read the book, but not the. Okay. I haven't seen the TV. Um, yet. <laughs> did you watch Devs, the Alex Garland series? That's brilliant as well. 
Um, I have not yet. Yeah, Debs is very, very stylish. Very well done. Let's not get into a catch up on what we've watched in uh, no. <laughs> in lockdown because <laughs> hey, I'm sure people have got better things to do than listen to us. So I think that will just about do us for the um, the podcast about sports movies that are really about fatherhood. So that will pretty much do us for this week. Um, as per usual, we will announce the films for next week's episode on Friday on our Instagram and Twitter pages. So if you want to follow us there. Um, on Instagram, you can find us frame underscore two underscore frame 250. And in the middle, that's T-O the word and 250 being the numbers. And on Twitter, you've got frame to frame two. So if you follow us there, you'll be able to see what the films are. The theme for next week's episode, we understand is a potentially controversial one. We're very prepared and we're going to be doing it um, very, very carefully. But the theme we're going to be looking at is Black Lives Matter. Okay, so if anyone wants to get in touch with us and give us any thoughts on that, feel free to, to contact us um, on the social media pages. Um, and if you want to follow us directly, I'm available on Twitter at AndyWilliams250. And Sean, you are Seano22, I believe? I am indeed, yeah. Excellent. So you can, you can just chat us up there as well. Um, feel free to, to let us know. And if you do like the podcast, please do give us good ratings and reviews on iTunes because um, that will help other people find us. So that will help us a lot. However, until next week on Frame to Frame, I'm Andy Williams. I'm Sean Wilson. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.